Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We're your hosts, Sky Gooden. And Lauren Wetmore. So, okay, today we have an interview with an alumna, actually, of one of our past Emerging Critics residencies. Um, who are you talking to today? Yeah, so today Arushi Vats uh, is a writer based in Delhi, India. She engages with practices in visual and lens-based art, uh, presenting mostly long-form writing on the impulses and currents stirring beneath the surface of those mediums. She's also the inaugural paid critical writing fellow, um, hosted by Momus in collaboration with iBeam, a terrific art center in New York, through which we're able to increase access to art publishing and enable sustained mentorship for a writer who's sort of on the cusp of realizing their full practice, say an early career art writer or critic. Uh, Arushi, of course, is like far and away (laughs) one of the most exciting writers that we've ever come across. So thinkers. um, So certainly, I don't know, I've just been blown away by her commitment and her rigor and her her clarity of thought um, over the last eight months. But yeah, this is a a critical writing fellowship that allows for that sustained um, and deepened channel of writing to happen in concert with a mentor, in this case, uh, Nora and Khan. Yeah, so um, I agree with you about Arushi. I remember when we were doing interviews all together with iBeam for the um, the Critical Writing Fellows, uh, I definitely almost wept in Arushi's <laughs> interview <laughs> out of, I don't even know what, just sort of like being transported by mm-hmm. her sort of um, eloquence and... Uh, I mean, there was this line in her in her application, too, that her ambition is to write on art as a site for both lyrical affinities and radical challenges. Um, mm-hmm. So right now she's working with Nora and Khan, her mentor, on a text that aims to wade through the thicket of surveillance practices, addressing site and regulation of visibility in South Asia. What are you focusing on in this interview? So for this, Arushi is going to read two sections from a piece she recently contributed to Runway Journal. It was guest edited by Joel Spring. It was issue 44. And the title of the piece is Exiting the Rehearsal, A Body in Delhi. Mm. Um, So this text starts with Arushi visiting a waste plant in Delhi and after and through that visit, she writes around ideas of pollution, air, legacy, waste. And the crux of the essay is this one line, to be witness to the Anthropocene, to be alive in this arc, is to ask, what are constitutional trajectories that wastes of various kinds hold? What imprints are held in them? Mm-hmm. So this text is sort of looking at an epoch of waste and ecocide. And it's very different from texts that we usually speak to that speak directly to works of art in that this is sort of talking about visual material. So Mm -hmm. surveillance, reportage, visual tracking projects. So she's not looking directly at an artwork, but looking at the differences between what we see in nature and how it is represented. Well, I'm really excited to be brought back into conversation, even as a listener with Arushi. It's uh, a very stirring and revelatory channel to be dropped into. Um, So 
maybe without further ado, this is Lauren Wetmore in conversation with Arushi Vats, who reads from her text, Exiting the Rehearsal, A Body in Delhi, published in issue 44 of Runway Journal. Section two is titled by Romania. Bricks, coconut shells, footwear, cloths, tarpaulin, large plastic. There are three landfills in the city of New Delhi. In 2016, one of them was on fire for a week. This was the year I realized that air is subdivided into particulate matter. Air, that thing not of sight, took the form of a muggy grey waft which hung oppressively in my room. I could grasp for the first time the appearance of matter that was coursing through my nasal passages and into my lungs with each breath. Refuse from the city, in all its material variants, wood, plastic, glass, cloth, was burning uncontrollably, and winds were dispersing these fumes beyond the radial limits of the dumping sites. This was no seasonal deposit into the body. Rather, it was a constant siege. The surge in its compositional toxicity revealed starkly and undeniably in moments of extremity. Pollution was a public problem with teeth back then, though as a policy issue it was kept at a distance from waste. Air Quality Index was published in newspapers, not tracked on screens of phones or privately owned purifying devices. Photographs of the smog which slumbered over the city of Delhi were circulated on television screens, and the city continued to wade through it, blinking its way to work each hour of the day. I feel a punch in the gut when Tiffany Sayer writes, Crisis News is a genre film. A freeze frame one can walk out of or scroll over. A mediatic carousal that numbs the intimacy of discharge. We're lulled by the lure of dirty pictures, a term used by Susan Shipley to describe the image-making capacity of toxic landscapes. Shupli is discussing the conjoined status of the image event in the Anthropocene, such as an oil spill, where the photographic image is not merely representative or deterministic of its apprehension by the public, but that it holds the ability to transform the very field of human vision. In such image events of the Anthropocene, there's a percussion of light, substance and stratum which is the toxic ecology acting as a fully realized aesthetic agent. In the example of air pollutants, a recurring feature in megacities of the global south, such as New Delhi, the materiality of photochemical smog alters the optical properties of the atmosphere, such that the way we actually see is modified along with the thing itself. Shupli pays attention to two simultaneous processes, the transformation of sensory fields in human actors by toxic landscapes, and the extrasensorial registers of change that matter bears. To be witness to the Anthropocene, to be alive in this arc is to ask, what are constitutional trajectories that wastes of various kinds hold? What imprints are held in them? The landfill that was on fire is located in a part of New Delhi known as Bhalswa. It reached its capacity in 2007, nearly a decade before the fire. Incidents of fire and collapsing of waste mounds has led to fatalities and destruction of informal colonies that dot the periphery of this landfill, along with another at Ghazipur. 
Since it began in 1984, among the earliest landfills in the city, Palswa holds legacy waste, degrading refuse from times past. Trommel, a cylindrical sieve that rotates and separates larger-sized objects from smaller ones, is used to sort legacy waste at these landfills. Yet as that wheel turns, fresh waste arrives every day. The cycle of wasted time cannot keep pace. Carboniferous capitalism wants us to believe that waste becomes productive energy, what Buryat calls the X-form. A thing depleted of its commodity function and stripped of its use value is discarded before arriving at plants that transform them into heat. The incinerator boiler is where solid waste transforms to slurry, then fly ash. The heat from this incineration fires the belly of the city, powering engines and factories, railroads and commercial complexes. But this is not the whole truth. That more wastes arrives at dump sites and treatment plants than their capacity or permissibility to process ensures there's always an ample supply of detritus that is out of place and out of time. The wheel of waste to energy can't keep up with the velocity of consumption circuits. The more amalgamated representations of waste circulate, the more abstract each item in that group becomes, losing its potent particularity. The more we're asked to fixate on static piles and mounds, the less we can see their diffusive life worlds, their radical refusal to behave. Legacy waste is unpredictable. It is resistantly unique. It bears traces of lifestyles that have withered under the rapid pace of change. One method of dealing with legacy waste is called biocapping, which quite literally involves placing layers of soil and plants as a cover to level a waste site. Capping does not reduce contamination or toxicity. It merely conceals it with grass and repurposes dump sites into parks, the land deemed unfit for permanent habitation. Legacy waste is active, traversing new states of being. It alters all neighboring matter in ways such as subsidence, the caving of the dump, which could bring down any structure built atop it, or the release of leaktate, a contaminated liquid composition of degrading materials that could include heavy metals such as mercury, phenol, ammonia nitrogen compounds, all of it seep into groundwater, and the emanation of toxic gases. Waste sites are remnants of what McKinsey Walk describes as the liquid world of industrial second nature under capitalism, a built environment that no longer follows and forms the contours and topos of the land, but rather transforms them into an abstract topographic plane. A way to subvert these effects is biomining, the further extraction of resources such as plastic, rubber, textile, glass from legacy waste incinerating all that is combustible and at least on the surface closing the life cycle of waste. Yet biomining doesn't reclaim everything. Since 2019, the inert material that cannot be processed into soil through biomining at Palswa gets dumped at a site in Badarpur, a densely and continuously populated district of Delhi since the 16th century. The waste plant and the landfill are ever-expanding, sprouting in neighborhoods around Delhi. 
I have to wonder whether a landfill or an incinerator are the greenhouses of extractive capitalism. Sites that must constantly seek newer outposts, be guarded by sentries that protect the pyromantic alchemies of creative destruction. I'm reminded of Alexeyevich's description of the shelter object at Chernobyl. A steel and concrete sarcophagus built to contain the radioactive emissions from reactor unit 4 as a corpse that still has breath, leaking radioactive isotopes from the gaps in its assembly. The shelter object is a blindfold writ large, imploring us to look away or bury beneath all that appears dangerous. In 2014, residents of Sukhdev Vihar woke up every morning to a snowfall of fly ash which settled on their rooftops a sediment generated from the Okla waste plant. The epoch of waste does not remain inertly around us, but is vividly present within us in gestures of perceptual shifts or habitual accretions. In the past year, as a pandemic confined us to the domestic, I took to gazing at the sky, generating a stream of pictures that captured cloud formations, wisps interrupted by an occasional sparrow or two. Each day, I label the pictures. Curus, cumulus, status, and so on. In these pictures, the blue of the sky is tinged with a shade John Ruskin would have called solo. I do not remember how my patch of sky looked before this. Part 3. Tender Alchemies We are post-purity, where mercury, arsenic, lead. How and upon whom do we perform the litmus test of sanity? In a survey of radioactive photography from Chernobyl, Kate Brown reports on the changed landscape following the eruption. The lava eventually cooled to stalactites, black, sparkling and impenetrable. These stalactites emit ruinogens, radioactive matter, exposure to which could cause symptoms ranging from dizziness and nausea to hemorrhage and death. Brown is examining the work of Sergei Koshilev and Alexander Kupny, who have photographed the site of Chernobyl, entering the sarcophagus from two cavern-like points. Even as their bodies accumulate doses of radioactivity, their photographs hold flickers that Brown describes as self-portraits by decaying isotopes, artificial matter created in laboratories, strontium, cesium, plutonium, uranium. These points of lights are not representations, they're energy embodied. To consider these speckles on photographic film, the waxen tint of the sky above my home, the tarred filters being pulled out of purifiers every winter, the accrual of contact with waste forms through air, water, land is to think in the realm of traces. Describing the paradigm of witnessing as an impure means of living in the world, Shupli states that in forensic science, every contact is perceived as leaving a trace. In forensic imagination, every encounter is capable of being retraced. This is a critical reorientation in thinking about waste sites, 
which have so far been framed in the midst of the plantation as a distant contained sphere of action. Yet as Wendy Wolford reminds us, plantation boundaries were and are porous. They are literally teeming with life, some of which will be captured as labor, but all of which resist complete control by external compulsion, even when internalized. The Okla waste plant is managed by a private infrastructural wing of the OP Jindal Group, an industrial conglomerate valued at USD 18 billion. Under the project titled Ecopolis, the Jindal Group operates or is in the process of setting up over eight plants across India. On the Ecopolis website, you can bask in the afterglow of a green future, promises of clean energy, pictures of orderly waste plants with trimmed gardens, and commitments to public welfare. In January 2021, the National Green Tribunal passed an order following reportage of leak gates from waste plants and landfills contaminating groundwater in parts of Delhi, including the river Yamuna. Water drawn from hand pumps, which are widely in use across settlements and colonies of the city, contain higher than safe levels of phenol, lead, chlorine, nickel, sulfate, biological oxygen demand, chemical oxygen demand. At home, I turn a purifier on every morning to fill up bottles with drinking water. The seamless movement of muscle memory. When M. Shaki Alexander asks, what do lives of privilege look like in the midst of war and the inevitable violence that accompanies the building of empire? I think of this moment that starts my day. The promise of this compound word, ecopolis, an ecologically forward city-state, a mode of governance where ecology precedes and defines the city, is exactly the kind of empty speak that capital can give us in times of rapid ecocide. Repeatedly, journalistic reports and judicial orders restate the negligence and lack of compliance with measures to guarantee biospheric wellness and public safety at the waste plants. Calls to composting are raised, then swept away. Composting, a material labor whereby old scraps are transformed through practices of care and attention into nutrient-rich new soil, goes against the lens of the state which denies what Latour calls nature cultures, human lives as encumbered, engendered, and inextricable from environment. In the sightlines of the state, land is a resource when it can be exclusionary, when its occupation or use can be demarcated into legitimate and illegitimate, with the inscribing of boundaries through devices such as fences, title deeds, laws, zones, regulations, landmarks, and storylines. This is the voice that rings through tribunals and waste management regulations. Informal colonies and slums generate desegregated waste and the wasteful use of land. To become green, the city must rationalize who has a right to occupy it. I remember the echoes of quarry workers in Talib's interviews, the imbrication of their psyche with the rocks, the emotive entanglements they built with the soon work and remind myself, this is not the only voice. It is a night in October and I walk through a park somewhere in New Delhi. The battered vein of the concrete walkway that runs through the grass is covered in a moss so green that it feels hallucinatory. 
That night, as I leave the park, I see the moss on the walls that support a rusted gate used for entry and exit. Moonlight drapes the walls with a green blanket and I breathe in. Smoke, spores, slit, the song of the cicadas, the glimmer of deep time. Later, I requested a friend to click a picture of the moss in daylight. Rays of light are embedded with ancestral time, traveling from days past and with the power to illuminate the boundlessness of life against linearity. When I scroll through these images, the Verdun ground is alive. In inquiries that shift modes of being from bodies of knowledge to environments of knowledge, scholars Donna Haraway and Jennifer Gibris demonstrate how the embodied and situated encounters we have with visual technologies can provide an entry point for generating other knowledge practices. Haraway's work discusses the Critocam, and Gibris focuses on Moscam, projects that follow the passage of time in non-human biotic and abiotic forms by securing video cameras with motion sensors in marine and marine wood sites. Similar to these projects is the Spillcam, which was a live feed of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill leak site. And in the simplest sense, the webcams, which relay corpse flower blooms from botanical centers around the world. In the case of the Moss cam, the sensors extend the function of the camera to that of an imager, connecting each frame to a data set of images. This approach considers an image as not a fixed moment in time, but a dynamic, processual moment articulated within a larger set of relationships. As visual tracking projects generate reams of webcam images and communities of active citizen scientists who view these, they also produce the possibilities for inhabitations where mutual embodiment is a process of making worlds. To the Moscam enthusiasts, even the disparate pictures from a park in New Delhi could narrate stories of shifts in moisture content in the air, changes in temperature, in the muted embodiment of macro decisions of policy and governance in intimate realities. I think of the waste plants and how habitats near and far are recording their journey past the projected life cycle of incinerator units into marcescent afterlives. I was warned about the smell, the heady mix of smoke, fly ash and chemicals that floats in the air around Okla. I remember feeling indifferent to it, inhaling as I had on my way to the plant an assortment of 21st century scents. Exhaust fumes, vehicular emissions, dust, sanitizer aerosols, the sweetness of winter blooms that lit up hedges and traffic roundabouts. To live in this hour is an exercise in parataxis, sifting through mutinous residues that arrive but refuse to settle, asking repeatedly, yes and... I look in the shower drain where soil which had stuck to my soles is circling in municipal water. I note this town as a talisman. All bodies that exit the rehearsal are depositories. Thank you so much for that, Arushi. For such a short piece, I think that it expands and contracts in its scope of inquiry so dramatically. On a larger level, we're talking about sort of waste management, but then we're talking about the specifics of pollution, the Anthropocene, extractive capitalism, ecocide. But then there is also this other sphere of your of your body, of your breathing, and the place that you live. Um, 
we start by hearing about the air entering your nasal passages. And there's a part in the first section that is so beautiful where the text starts, um, and I'll quote, we have been anointed by this patch of the earth. It is a film on us. It's clear that there is something that you very personally experience about what you're talking about in this text. And I would love to hear, um, yeah, what brought you to it? Um, thank you for that very thoughtful sort of reading of the essay. Um, and I think you've sort of identified a big impulse that the, the main impulse that was driving me towards writing this Um I have lived in Delhi for all of my life. Uh, it's been three decades of growing up in the city um, and growing up with the city because the city's changed significantly and it's not just one city. Where I've lived in Delhi has changed. Uh, I grew up in a house which was across the river Yamuna um, in, the, in the town of Noida, which is now part of another state but comes under the national capital territory. And that's also quite interesting, the relationship between urban, peri-urban, and then how these spaces, depending on how sites get shaped by modes of capital, how they get to be part of how they get to be part of a territory or how they're sort of relegated. And growing up in Noida, I had to cross the river Yamuna every day and I'd look at it. It's an extremely dirty and polluted river. It's not what you it's not the river I saw in my textbooks. Um, it it had no the notion of a river, there was no correlation with images that were all around me, plus the river that the actual river that I was encountering in my life. Um, and the pollution of Yamuna is something that's been looked at through many lenses. But over time, as I started working, um, I shifted to more towards the center of New Delhi, um, away from the periphery. And now Yamuna is a distant reality. I, I only get to see it once every couple of weeks, maybe, if if I'm lucky. Otherwise, I don't. And what was interesting to me was Yamuna is a constant encounter with waste because you, you see that river. You see how its banks are littered. Its, its stream is murky. And it's there, whereas the place where I stay, waste seems like a very distant reality. I stay in an enclave, I stay in an enclosure now, um, where a, wa a, a waste-collecting truck comes in the morning, we segregate our waste, and we, we use biodegradable waste pa packets and things like that. And there's a sense of order and control here, um, which is extremely difficult to believe when you're in contact with, with visuals such as the Yamuna. Um, and so I began to think about what it means to inhabit the city differently based on my location, um, which is just by a radius of a few kilometers, and what it means to relate to the ways in which the city works and produces and as an extension of that production, consumes and discards, um, and how that relationship's changed significantly based on where I'm located. So it came from that point. But as you mentioned, there's other modes of inquiry, I think, for the past year, for the past two years, I think even before COVID, uh, became a reality, became a force that significantly shapes our reality. 
um, there were images of wildfires in various parts of the world. Um, these images were awakening in me memories of fire in my city, in my city, the city of Delhi, where landfills had been on fire a few years ago. Um, and so it became sort of like a way to think about what it means to live in this moment where these images are frequent. The ocean is on fire, the landfill is on fire, and, and how we can relate to that, how it's affecting the way we view the world. That idea of relating to it bodily in terms of your location, but then also in terms of um, sort of visual technology and culture is something that you you weave through this really beautifully. I think for me, the bodily um, perspective was extremely important. Um, it it felt necessary to to admit to myself that I'm living in in a highly implicated and compromised state of contact, um, where there's also possibility for new ways of thinking. Um, and I think the the bodily perspective became important because one of the one of the thinkers that I've been very inspired by um, Boaventura Santos has this idea of the abyssal the abyssal line of modernity as this sense of division in the world that that undergirds frameworks of thinking of capitalism of colonialism as things that necessarily create dualities and divisions and that the post-abyssal thinker must A, have radical co-presence with the field and in the field um, and must also recognize their own implicatedness in these frameworks of thinking. For Santos, the post-abyssal researcher is someone who has to come from a place of learning to unlearning, to understanding that the existence of plural epistemologies requires us to forget certain lessons that have been ingrained in us through our colonial curriculums. The sense that a waste plant is a contained site. These are learnings that need to be forgotten. The sense that um, plantation boundaries are fixed, that, that cities are rationalized and planned, um, are all learnings that need to be forgotten in order to arrive at a place where you understand that that's not the order of things. Um, and their body became extremely important to begin to think about how, A, I'm a part of this regime, but B, precisely because I'm a part of this regime, I'm witness to certain modes of contact and influence that needs to be narrated um, or at least written down, understood, um, and spent time with. So I think what happens when we talk about things like waste, it, it, it's, it's, such a, it's such a vast world. It, it has this homogenizing violence to it. All waste is the same, but we know that that's not the case. Um, all waste plants are the same, but that's not really the case. Um, every city has its waste management system. Its relationship to that system is going to be different based on informal settlements that come up in the city, how how divided that city is on lines of 
class, on lines of migration, on lines of labor, caste. Um, and so this waste is this understanding that something that goes in a bin that every house has and then goes out into the world, that needed to be challenged and, and, and broken from my own situatedness as someone who generates waste, sees how it's handled, and lives with lives with its afterlife uh, in the very air I breathe, the water I drink, uh, going down the street for a walk. That this field is is my home. It's it's the only home I've ever known, and it's the city. Yeah. I want to go back to what you just said about this being the place that you breathe, and saying that you're in a compromised state of contact. And that also you can create sort of connections between the place that you live and sites of, say, extreme um, ecocide that we would consider to be completely separate from our own. Um, and I want I want to know more about this connection that you created between um, Chernobyl as what you describe as a dead space that is still breathing, and then New Delhi which seems to be an alive place that's ability to breathe is being compromised? Um, yeah, I think for me it became important to think about how we create narratives of exception. Um, so an exception event um, such as the ocean on fire or, or a radioactive leak that's happening thousands of miles away. Um, this this understanding of of what is exceptional, the temporal scale of the exceptional versus the everyday, um, and whether those those again those divisions are as firm as we as we take them to be. Um, this I was reading Svetlana Alexeyevich's book um, Chernobyl Prayer, and it had this, and it's interesting I, for me. It was. It was really remarkable to see that she mentions how when the incident happened, isotopes were dispersed all over the world. They were found in New Delhi. And I encountered my city in this book written in a very different time by an author who's contending with a very different context. And and that moment somehow seemed to have, I looked up the year, whether I was alive, whether I would have been in Delhi, whether a part of and not from a sense of romanticizing an event like that. Oh, here I have a memorabilia of it in my body in some way. But more in terms of thinking about how deeply tied our planetary destiny is. And to think about events not in in separation from one another, not as distant. Um I'm sort of also circling back again to to Santos. He says to move away from divisional thinking. It means to give all forms of life and all ways of living simultaneity and contemporaneity. So even if you're situated in in an epistemological framework that looks at time differently, do not treat you as not ontologically contemporaneous to me. Do not reduce you to tropes of primitivism or some mode of distant history, um, it, it means a radical refusal of linearity, this notion of progress, this notion of moving from 
infantile to maturity, which is the modern age to. And I think that moment in that book did that for me. Suddenly I was in immediate contact with something that had happened elsewhere. And it alerted me to the ways in which I'm still in contact with not revengeance, but a whole host of chemical formulations that are produced and created in sites very close to me. Um, and I think it, it became important to also think about when a life, what a life cycle is. Um, this notion that a living, breathing, productive body, a body that creates value, um, which is which can be seen as something that can be extracted, um, and what happens to the body after that? It's it's Svetlana Alexievich describes it so beautifully. She's she calls it firstly a sarcophagus, and then she says, "It's we assume because we've covered a site up with concrete that what's inside is still it's inert, it's dead, but it's not. It's changing its material form. It's still thriving, but in new ways." And that's something that I, I thought about a lot with the context of waste as well. It's it's so easy to think about, here's a tetra pack that I'm chucking into my bin and that's it. it, it it'll get repurposed into something else. Um, I think it was also coming from a place of reading a lot. Um, a lot of thinkers who, who write about the vibrancy of matter, the fact that their material witnessing, like Susan Shupley, who writes about ways in which materials bear witness, and the sense that we have about biotic and abiotic world, again, that division, the sense that things around us are inert and passive, to, to move away from that thinking and to begin thinking about what other state changes, form changes that are happening um, outside of my own um, biotic form. I think you're absolutely right that that um it is almost impossible to to as you say create that radical or engage in that radical way of thinking of understanding all of this to be connected and to to treat it as such particularly when we are surrounded by systems that are so invested in maintaining certain kinds of boundaries you know, even on the level of what you were talking about in terms of um, state or regional boundaries, um, borders of countries. Like I, when you were speaking, I was thinking about, and perhaps this is off topic, but a few years ago, one of the uh, nuclear plants or like a cooling tower um, just outside of Brussels, where I live, uh, showed some faults Um and so they they decommissioned it, and then of course the same faults were showing up in all of the other, all of the other <laughs> cooling towers and plants all across Belgium. And so they had to shut all of those down. And the main news that was happening in Belgium was this concern about maybe not having enough energy. They said, you know, we'll have enough energy to get us to Christmas. And I didn't. That that was my concern you know, that maybe there wouldn't be enough energy until I was speaking to somebody in the Netherlands who said that actually all of the countries bordering Belgium had distributed iodine pills to all of the populations living along the Belgian border. You know, that that, that there were 
people who are living sort of one kilometer away from each other or even next door from each other and their their relationship to how they're being talked about and how they consider um, a possible like catastrophic waste event um, is just so managed and separated by by these systems. Yeah, I think it's 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 also something that you witness in in responses to sort of micro crises that unfold. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I think a city is such a such an interesting site to to look at this phenomena where when the landfill was on fire in New Delhi, um, a there is this voyeuristic. Yeah, impulse to just not be to not be able to look away from that kind of an image, um, mm-hmm. which is something that Shukli talks about quite a bit in her essay. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also this sense of like, who who are the bordering communities? Who are the communities most in contact? Who wakes up next morning to find their balconies covered in in fly ash? Mm-hmm. Um, a strange kind of snowfall. Yeah, for whom this is not tourism, you know, they're not visiting it as an event. It is the ongoing reality of their lives. Yeah. And to think about also, this is the reason why I'm I'm so fascinated in spaces like these um, that essentially power and drive a city is to think about for whom is this a workplace, whose whose workplace is on fire right now, who who's going to possibly not have a job tomorrow or be uh, absorbed into some other kind of labor. For whom, you know, so those are things that it's interesting to think about that our relationship to a certain place, if if you and I are consuming energy, if this waste plant is generating energy, my concern is primarily regarding. But I do feel that when, and this is where I felt the the editors at Runway were really wonderful um, people to think out loud with, to think about, to also sort of expand we expand our understandings by coming in contact with one another. The fact that you had that conversation that told you that there are health concerns that other states have, there are power concerns that some states have with relation to the same event. Um, that happens when people talk among one another and we cross those boundaries very often in, in, our, in our modes of contact with each other. Um, and that's something that the narrative mode allows you to introduce to an essay um, because for me, the essay is not just about what I think of waste or what I've experienced of waste firsthand, which isn't much besides this constant sense of it shaping my my environment, um, but also to think about how other people are in contact with it, in relationship with it, how what are the various ways in which we're implicated, um, and that it's not just any one way. And I think the narrative form really helped bring that out. Um, as much as much as it's situated in my body, I was keen to try to explore as many ways of relating to us to the same phenomena. Um, and that I think also comes from the sense of I think the best way I've found to describe this is this method is in Again, something that the runway team, they sent a book across right at the beginning. And then I began reading it and I said, ah, oh, this this is it. It's sometimes you come across a book that just 
conveys what you've been trying to do so beautifully and eloquently that you say this is it i'm just going to quote this now <laughs> as <laughs> as a as a way to describe what i was attempting to do but um this uh this is wonderful book the extractive zone by macarena gomez paris and she writes about how um this practice of a submerged viewpoint to see things from beneath or within and i began to think about what it's like to be submerged in a waste site um what because and it's not it's not just a hypothetical in new delhi where waste sites flout a lot of safety norms people die on the mounds um they're dangerous they give they cave in um there are this phenomena akin to a landslide on these piles of waste um where workers who are working are are in highly precarious modes of sort of um contact and so it's not just like a thought experiment it's it's a reality that's captured to begin thinking about what it's like to be both the waste and to be somebody who produces that waste who creates that waste who sorts that waste who's who's imperiled by that waste in various ways in in the long arc of contact with pollutants and in the immediate arc of working in an unsafe work environment working in an informal industry where you have no protections or there is no there is no obligation to adhere to regulations and of these sites is working with a kind of impunity that they get to enjoy knowing that they are they're basically what's firing up the massive city and it's it's need for energy it's need for resources um and that somehow led me to thinking about waste sites and extractivism and this broad relationship that we've built with the world and the closest i could think of that captured it was the framework of plantation scene to not to not just look at to not just look at a place to or to reduce it purely to the economic exchanges that happen there but to look at the deep ways in which people come to live in these sites and live around these sites and live along with them um with regards to the waste site in new delhi civic action has been a big big mode of contesting power uh these are these are privately managed and there's a lot of big money um driving these spaces but neighboring communities have sort of come together to create some awareness regarding the fact that there are massive safety violations everyone's at a lot of risk um and that's an interesting thing to think about these are also places where people encounter the waste site every day it's a part of their landscape it's a part of their their life um what was really interesting for me when i was i'd done a bunch of visits to this waste plant but i i saw a large sort of mound like structure and people were playing and lounging around it and i asked someone when did this come up or has it always been there they said no this is recent it came up a few years ago but he said but now it's a part of our landscape we've, we've learned to use it we've learned to live around it we've learned to make more of it than what was given and there are many relationships at play within sites of extraction there are many forms of resistance that happen many ways of life 
and living that happens, um, liveness and living that happens. And I think it's important to to treat it in that kind of uh, complexity. I wonder how you see your writing to be sort of a, uh, or writing this text and publishing it and talking about it to be part of that complexity, like even to boil it down, um, you were mentioning that you had visited this uh plant several times. And in the first part of the piece, you talk about that more specifically, and you talk about how when you visit, you have to fill out a register and indicate yeah. your purpose, your purpose for your yeah. visit. And I wonder, uh, I wonder what you wrote as your purpose. Um, so that's actually a very interesting story. Uh, the couple of times I did try to enter, each time I was stopped. Um, hmm. And then I just and the, the last time I was just told, please stop visiting. <laughs> but, and I also kind of understood that that I'm also in contact with um, people who are performing their job, which is yeah. they're enlisted to, to not let anybody enter who's not yeah. authorized. And so they're simply performing a very standard procedure of like checking who, who I am, where I'm from. I kept writing research uh, yeah. And I kept saying I'm a student on a research project, which is the best way to, because there's some ways to sort of get around if someone thinks it's just a student and it's not a journalist, which is a very feared word. Right. Um, <laughs> and I'm not a journalist. I'm just a writer. But the, so the student seems like a good way. To- there's a sliding scale between journalist and student that we all sort of need to occupy in certain points yeah. at certain points of access. <laughs> And I do feel like I am a student. I'm just not perhaps yeah. enrolled somewhere. I'm still yeah. learning. And <laughs> that seems to be pretty much what I'm interested in doing. So it's it doesn't feel like that much of a lie. It feels like a white lie. Yeah. Um, but one you have to say. And it's interesting that I later went and Googled a bit about who's who. And I was talking to a few people who've written things um on the on the waste plants. And yeah. I realized no one's given access. It's so fortress. Mm. Um and that to me says there's something here that that it's it's felt that it needs to be separated and removed. The sense that mm-hmm. it's an elsewhere right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, beyond these walls, what's happening is not our concern. Um, yeah. And just by the placing of those walls, by the placing of that fence, the problem is supposed to vanish when it's so visibly all around us is is an interesting sort of it's it's just a way in which uh these zones come up um and and that was really that was quite interesting and disturbing at the same time um mm-hmm. yeah i think fencing as a way of keeping people out but also of visually restricting access is something that i've been thinking about quite a bit because it's, it's something that when one is thinking about Shupli and her work on image event or even sort of looking at Ermgard um, Emelheims who, who wrote the essay which Shupli draws upon quite a bit, um, which looks at how the conditions of visuality are changed. I'm also thinking about what happens when there is no visual, um, when you, so you want, at one end you have the proliferation of these highly addictive images mm-hmm. of crises, you know, an oil spill somewhere, um, a wildfire somewhere. And so to look at that contained image event, that that narrative of an exception, 
versus something that's that's daily and every day, but that's concealed from you. You can't enter the waste plant. You can't see what's happening inside it. You mm-hmm. you can only see the towers up in the sky. That's it mm-hmm. from a distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and also maybe this inability, I'm really interested in this inability for us to actually agree on a visual language to communicate danger or to say, stay out of this place. You know, uh, thinking about say like, putting future warnings on disaster sites that will forever be dangerous to humans. How, do, how, um, what kind of signage after we're gone will communicate that to somebody who might come across and, um, yeah, how to communicate danger. Yeah. And I'm always curious to think about what someone's going to make with the fact that we lived so intimately with danger. Yeah. Uh, we lived in such proximity to danger, in in in, in such a we we're dancing with danger every day. We're in love with danger. We're we're inhabiting a system where we're deeply seduced by danger. Um, but it just feels far away. Um, mm. It's it's interesting to think about how, for me, for instance, if I don't turn on my water purifier in the morning, the water I drink will certainly make me fall sick. Um, and could possibly kill me. But for me to think that that this is in danger, um, mm-hmm. but what's what's happening in a reactor somewhere in the other end of the world or what's happening, that's danger. <laughs> right. right. Um, it's it's just interesting how how we're so seeped into it. And I think that's essentially where the body became a really important way. I began to pay attention to like, okay, this is the water I pay for. This comes from the municipality. I get it because I live in a formal colony, but Delhi is a city of informal settlements. It's a city Mm. that's driven by informal colonies and settlements where labor lives, labor that works across all forms of industries, that performs all kinds of, all modes of labor. Um, That's that's ensuring the machine of the city runs. Um, So to think about to pay attention to my own sort of gestures, like I get up in the morning and I must turn on the purifiers. The fact that two years ago I could finally afford an air purifier, that was a big moment in my life. I said, oh, I don't have to choke in the smog uh, this winter. Um, But to begin thinking about ways in which I ritualized danger and its presence in my life. Um, Mm -hmm. And... And yeah, so to just sort of begin to think about how, what, what future societies would make of the fact that this is a city where you need to be able to afford a purifier in order to not be coughing all the time. And to also be witness to people around me when I'm in a bus. Um, and this is before you became so hyper aware of, of other people's nasal passages um <laughs> yeah. but in in a but this is like years ago but you'd be in a bus and you'd see around november october crop burning happens in neighboring mm-hmm. states there's uh the fog sort of settles into a form of a smog and everyone around you is coughing um there are more and more cases of asthma there are more cases of illnesses related to there are more allergies and you're sensing that there's a change around you um, it's not just that you're growing older, but that when you, even when you're in public spaces, you're seeing a general sense of sickness that's just been normalized as uh, this is what happens in the winter. You cough your yeah. way through five five months of smog, and then you wait for the summer. Um, and 
among the things that that when the pandemic hit, one of the things in New Delhi, I think it even made the news. Everyone was so shocked. We could see clouds properly. Hmm. Um, the first summer of the lockdown. Uh, I don't know if it was because vehicular transmissions were down, or whether we were just in some state of um, murderous ecstasy of wanting to make <laughs> something beautiful out of this confinement to our houses. <laughs> but everyone was looking up at the sky and saying, oh gosh, the sky is this blue. I've never seen yeah. it be this blue. What a beautiful um, day. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, nature's <laughs> healing and things like that. Yeah, I remember that you know, time. Yeah, yeah. So we went through that in De- Delhi as well. And we went through that. And then in the second wave, when India was witnessing a covid catastrophe of just unbearable proportions yeah um and crematoriums were on overload because there were so many people dying and there was not enough infrastructure to process that death um houses around new delhi were reporting the settling of ash on their roofs and on their balconies from cremation grounds that were burning through the night. And to think that these are these are exceptional spaces, these are, you know, whatever tools of theory gives us, heterotopias or whatever you want to call it, yeah. these exist outside and beyond. It's just now to to really be in a mode of of denial because yes. these are highly proximate. They're right under your skin, they're in your gut. It's it's and it's and there's some, I believe in the process of writing this essay and reading everything, I, I, I believe that there is truly something radical in that. Once you accept that yeah. it is not a faraway reality, but it's a part of your lifetime, your life cycle, your your life outcomes, um, there's something truly powerful about that because then you become invested in notions of community and public life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that any kind of private enclosure-based living will never right. afford you. Um, uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, this kind of, this this ideal of, of being able to separate yourself, um, you know, create a space of safety is, is just a total fantasy and that can't be the utopia that we are reaching for anymore. So it doesn't exist. I'm also sort of thinking about, it's interesting you brought up this, the word utopia, because that's, mm-hmm. again, something that's been on my mind um, a lot to, to think about utopia or when we stopped thinking of utopias. Um, and it's it's extremely important for me when I, when I speak about community action and public life, um, there is this great sense of coming to terms with and contending with the complexities of of occupying these spaces um, and the fact that you're often in, you're going to be engaged with institutions that, yeah. that may not be pleasurable. So mm. what I found really troubling and the reason why the, the essay doesn't really include any works of art, mm. I was looking at, at, at artworks that have been produced around the idea of waste and there's this deep aesthetic politicization that almost often leads to a depoliticization of waste. Um, The sense that we don't want to get into the murky waters of what happens when citizens protest, but their protest leads to nothing. Um, What happens when a tribunal meets, but a tribunal doesn't produce any report? Um, What happens to abandoned initiatives or initiatives that don't meet? To to sort of turn, turn your back in some sense, 
um, from that really difficult space of working together to lose ends, ends that may not come to be realized immediately or in this iteration of collectivity. Um, and I didn't want to engage with that mode because I feel like as much as as much as it's striking to to look at image after image of trash and piles of trash, mm-hmm. um, as seductive as that is, it's also more important to think about who generates these. That trash in itself is like a can. It's like an amalgamation of so much of a certain place and its peoples and who are those peoples? What are the species in contact with it? Yeah, that's such a strength of this essay, actually, that you're thinking about visual culture, as I said, but yeah, there is no presence of art. And I know you to be somebody who likes to write about art, but it's really interesting to think about that as a conscious choice because we are not given very many examples of art that, that doesn't fall into this, you know, Edward Bertinsky sort of, extreme zoom out Hmm. and abstraction Hmm. yeah I mean I I think about what what that abstraction lends us um Mm -hmm. and I think about abstraction as as a gesture of power um I think one of the thinkers I sort of bring up in the essay but I've been reading a lot about who's also written this fantastic book on utopia Mm -hmm. uh McKinsey walk um Mm -hmm. the idea that there is a certain violence to abstraction. Mm-hmm. It it affords us certain modes of disconnecting from absolutely the material madness of things. Um, it it's so I was extremely clear that I didn't want to do that. I, I'm still very invested in thinking about how do we come to live with, alongside, and beyond the waste plant. Um, to me, a group of citizens coming together to protest a waste plant and then not achieving that end and disbanding is not a story of failure. It's it's right. more about this is this is the terrain of of action of collective action where you have to you have to think about ways to negotiate and contend with within one another to not think of peoples as this homogenous category that everyone's going to want to. Mm-hmm. achieve mm-hmm. the same end but that's what makes politics so fantastic um mm-hmm. and that's what that that's where i'm interested in thinking about um i'm also interested in thinking about how we begin naming and implicating um ownership structures it, it was extremely important for me to mention that these the waste plant that I'm in contact with is run by a private company. Yeah. It was important for me to name them. It was important for me to look into them in their history and their future plans. Um, and, and I felt that what happens when you're abstracting is the power that is there in this in, in particularity such as this gets diluted. Um, mm-hmm. And you enter into in so easy to fall into a trance of looking at mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. flattened representations of, of waste sites. Um, it's it's yeah, sort of I more... Think, yeah. Isn't it Nora, Nora Khan wrote a really beautiful essay about Sandra Perry's work, if I'm getting mm-hmm. this right, where she talks about and Sandra Perry talks a lot about abstraction that, um, yeah, if you pl- apply abstraction to vulnerable peoples, underrepresented contexts, it only allows 
for them to be homogenized and essentially treated as non-agents. Yeah, I think that um, to begin to even look at the composition of waste um, and and its, its formation, its degradation, its its own arc in time um, is to sort of deny this form of abstraction that can so easily freeze things and paralyze them into into the word you use, Lauren, was agency, to just freeze them out of agency. Um, and I think like this is something, this is the kind of work that scholars like Shukli are doing where they're looking at material witnessing and looking at modes of um, agency that exceed the human. And that's something that, again, I'm very interested in because I don't, again, see politics as a sphere of action that only involves the humans, uh, human actors. It involves our entire complex life world. Um, and there's so many theoretical words that come close to describing this. There's nature culture. There's, but I truly feel like at the end of the day, it's it's the sense of what made us public in the first place, um, and this erasure of this idea of the private as enclosure, or the private as an enclave, private as a fence that you can put up and around and demarcate. Um, so, yeah, to just think about that porosity that that runs through every part of life. Um, and every form and kind of life, um, that that sort of became possible when when I began looking at the waste, and that's how I got so interested in legacy waste. It's so interesting that eighty four, the year this landfill was built, was also the year riots took place in New Delhi, um, and those were state mandated riots, um, state mandated targeting of a specific religious community. Um, it's interesting to think about these these things that are unfolding at the same time in a city. These developments that seem so far apart, but I but are so close, spatially close, temporally close, uh, close in in the forms of dispossession and violence and modes of extractivism and and colonial settlerism that that are that run through these that unite these developments that, yeah, that undergirds them um, in very significant ways. Can I ask, um, so this text was published by Runway, which is an online publication out of Australia. And I wonder, I'm interested in the reception to it, um, sort of international receptions, but but more specifically, maybe a local reception. Like, have you spoken to people, other people who live in New Delhi or in your neighborhood who have read this? Can you tell me anything about the reception? Yeah, I actually have a very interesting sort of feedback. Um, so I was in conversation with residents in Sukhdev Vihar and Jasola Vihar, which are two sort of residential localities um, bordering the waste plant in Okla. And um, I was speaking to one of the persons who who helped organize the residence of Jasola Vihar. And he was telling me, oh, this is quite complex. But for us, the matter was not this complex. Um, and I realized that, yes, perhaps I have, in my own thinking about this issue, I've, I've sort of 
I was wondering what I've done through my methodology to this right. matter. Right. Uh, because like I said, you know, when you're, when you're approaching a topic, most people see you either as a student or a journalist. So this yeah. understanding that you're speaking to them and you'll relay their voice um, is, is this expectation. Um, and it became important for me now to move forward, to be clear in terms of my own involvement with the project and what people could expect in their contact with me. Yeah. Uh, I think, and, and again, this use of the word complex became interesting for me because I was wondering if in, in relying on so much of literature that's produced within academic and para-academic spaces, mm-hmm. um, whether the essay necessarily, who it, who, for whom it becomes readable and to whom it becomes non-accessible. Right. right. Um, and I think, and to think about this as citizen groups are used to reading legal documents. They look at mm-hmm. orders Very passed by tribunals. Documents. Yeah. So it's it's not the complexity of of composition. It's the com- it's 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 a complexity of um the discourse or the paradigm that prevails within certain disciplines. And then what happens mm-hmm. when someone who's not in that discipline accesses it? What are the modes um of what are the blockages they find? What are the barriers that they encounter? Uh, so how to perhaps... So those are two things I became quite aware of um, in thinking about writing something like this next time. Um, hmm. To just sort of look at... To look at it both in terms of how I contact people um, and how I present my role. And it's an interesting thing yeah. to think about as as a writer as well. And people who write on art who often also write on... Um, socio-political developments. Um, yeah. it, to think about when you're not an investigative journalist, when you're not a reporter, when you're not looking to simply do reportage, but to understand something. Uh, you're not a scholar, so you're not producing something that is tied to the conventions of, say, a research essay. Um, what happens when you're working with with a form itself that's so mixed and impure, uh, like this essay was, which which is what I loved about it, and which is what I think platforms like Runway are doing to encourage you to sort of mix ways of addressal and strategies of writing. Um, but what happens when you're communicating that to the wider universe of people and resources and organizations you're in touch with? So it's an interesting question to think about even moving forward with uh, modes of writing that are mixed that are you know um, yeah it's it's very yeah. difficult and I think it, it's a very dangerous area too because it's essentially dependent on sort of a personal set of of ethics right like we are not yeah. w- when you're doing this kind of writing and this kind of inquiry you know you're in as you were saying like you're sort of in the school of your own of your own desire to learn um you have stepped out a bit of of a sphere of enforced responsibility. Like there is no ethics board, there is no journalistic code. Um, you know, of course, in the way that your work is received, uh, it, that becomes that becomes the way that it, that its sort of credibility is judged. But um, but yeah, it can be very much trial and error. Yeah, I think for me, it's it's also an interesting way to think about who the writer is um, mm. when they're not affiliated with institutions yeah. or when they're not working within conventions of received conventions of writing. Yeah. Um, w- what then becomes 
this the status of the writer and it's interesting that it's it's destabilized and it's good that i took it as a way to think about this a lot more and to not be thrown into crisis but to certainly be thrown into a state of question questioning um state of inquiry towards myself yeah absolutely. to also begin thinking i mean because there there's certain expectations within genres and then if you can and increasingly the kind of work i'm being drawn to reading not just writing mm-hmm. is one that's cross genre that's 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 melding methodologies of various kinds um that has that sense of fluidity um even even sort of essays on art that have really struck me are also sort of essays on contemporary events in politics and um and they straddle that that line between looking at theoretical work through through the lens of ongoing sort of praxis practices and developments um and yet writing in a first person mode or writing in a in a sort of um narrative mode so it's it's interesting to think about what happens to the idea of writer also interesting to think about what's expected of art writers um with a with a platform like runway there was so much support mm. for for shaping this essay in a way that there was no expectation that one has to necessarily contend with or um or you know appraise an artwork or understand it or or analyze it um it was understood that this is a question of not just visuality but it's a question of living through a certain time Hmm. um and that in itself is a question of how we see and how how our visual fields are ordered and how our other senses are ordered and that freedom comes with its set of questions about your responsibility as a writer um yeah. if you're not beholden to any methodology which is excellent um <laughs> what what are, exactly so what is going to be your roadmap what are yeah. your signposts who is going to guide you through it um yeah. and why where, are you writing this why are you writing, writing this it for <laughs> yeah where are you going to learn from so those things and it's it's interesting to be in this in this state of uncertainty in this deep end of the pool it's it's good it's i think it's helpful for thinking about the future as well do you like writing I do. I <laughs> I know too. I know the, the the standard is that no it's agonizing <laughs> and painful and it is but I do love it. Um and I do think that it's such a luxury to be able to write. It shouldn't be but it is and I'm so grateful to be able to get to do it. Um mm. I hope everyone who wishes to gets the material conditions in life that that are required to be able to write. The time to read, the time to think, the time to take a walk. the time to be freed of the expectations of making a living um to just to just have that those hours in a day where you can you can sit with your thoughts it's it's an immense luxury i don't i don't think it's it it's something that i ever thought i would get to do um huh. i always thought i would be stuck in a 9 to 5 and and the problem is that it's not just and this is exactly where this comes this essay also comes in it's not like at 5 you're done life continues yeah. so you have and we live in highly immersed states of being right we have 
people we love, we have people we are responsible for, people who are responsible for us, people who take care of us and we take care in turn. There's so many demands of life and it's so easy for them to get in the way of writing um, that when you're able to actually sit down to write, it feels like a blessing. Um, and I really hope that if we're having a conversation 10 years from now, writers in every part of the world can say they have the freedom to write, they have the luxury to write. Um, it isn't a luxury. It's it's a part of their day. It, it mm-hmm. It's not something that needs to be carved out mm-hmm. um, of copious amounts of mindless labor, um, yeah. which, which we do. I, I mean, personally, I feel like for every hour I spend um, fixing commas or like placing semicolons in the right place, <laughs> I yearn for the moment in the evening when I can just sit back, <laughs> read something, watch something, and then somehow yeah. build a sentence. Um, and put your and, own semicolons in the wrong place. Yes. And then fix and then, later. <laughs> make it someone else's trouble to be, yeah. But it's, it's no, it's really, it's quite a, it's quite a joyful thing when you don't have, I think uh, people's relationship to writing differs, but I've felt that for most people, one of my favorite podcasts is Day Jobs, <laughs> because mm. it's about a bunch of creative people who are having to hold day jobs just to, you know, meet the costs of living. And I see this meme every once couple of days where there's a human and a chimpanzee and the chimpanzee just say, you're the only species that pays to live on this planet. And I relate to that every month, <laughs> end of the month when the bills come around, I'm like, yes, can't believe I'm paying to be alive. But, um, but no, so I think I, I hope that it's this is not the only relationship people get to have with writing. I hope it's something that people also come to when out of, out of a condition of abundance and from a place of support and from a place of recognition. Um, and I think in some ways, the fellowship um, that IBM and Momus have offered has, mm. has created that kind of space. So I hope more programs like this come up mm. um, and eventually we can move to a place where these programs aren't the exception, but they're the norm, that they're the institutions within which we can work. And there are different yeah. kind of institutions from the one that we've known so far. So that's my hope for writers everywhere. Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish. We would like to thank Arushi Vats for her contribution to this season. And a special thanks to all those of you who are supporting the podcast. And it just mm. occurred to me, if there's mm. anybody listening who wanted to advertise on the podcast, that is an option. <laughs> that is <laughs> an option. <laughs> For any form of support, you can find us at either patreon.com backslash momusart or contact me directly about making a one-time contribution or indeed taking an ad at skygooden at momus.ca. This has been episode 39 of Momus the Podcast.